morning, Legacy Church. It's good to be with you again. I hope John was helpful for you just then in those steps, those very practical steps on how do we process Black Lives Matter. If you have any questions on that, by the way, um, feel free to let us know. Info at LegacyKnoxville.com. Feel free to watch it again. I know that Texas Longhorn shirt is a little bit of a distraction, but if you could just choke it down and look beyond it, there's a lot to learn in a video like that. Um, but hey, listen, if you have your Bible or a device, turn to Philippians 3. That's going to be a fascinating passage that is going to help us in a solid way today. I, in fact, I find this passage to be one of the more fascinating in the whole letter to the church in Philippi. Um, and I think it's going to be helpful for us today because I'm pretty convinced, resolved, that most of the church, not much, most of the church is not experiencing a very life-giving walk with Jesus. I think it's probably more transactional. I'm going to do some things, so hopefully you do some things. And so I think the average person that attends a church service is trying to live impressively before God so that God does impressive things for them. And that's not life-giving at all. That's life-draining. So Paul's going to help us with this just a little bit. So look at verse 2 of chapter 3, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Paul says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You know, for the first 13 years of my walk with Jesus, it wasn't very life-giving. In fact, I think you could have boiled up the, the whole of my theology into, I'm going to do the best I can to avoid this bad list of items. And I'm also going to do the best I can to do all of these good things I'm supposed to do so that God does the best he can to bless me, to make a way for me. I, I, I wanted to do things to somewhat make God indebted to be impressive for me, right? Now, interesting thing is, is for that first 13 years, or for the last 10 of those years, I was a pastor. <laughs> so 10 of those 13 years, I was a pastor. And let me tell you, this is a dreadful way to live, always trying to be impressive, always measuring performance. I would lose confidence in how much the Lord loved me, or I would gain confidence based on my behavior, based on the way I felt about my behavior. Was I telling enough people about Jesus? Um, was I reading the Bible enough? 
enough every day, enough days of the week? Was I memorizing enough? Was I showing up to enough stuff? Was I quick to um, confess my sins? Was I avoiding certain sins? Was I giving enough money? You could fill in the blank. I was never sure if God was for me or against me. Never sure. Always looking over my shoulder. I mean, I might be, I might suspect that God would be pleased with me if I had something good happen to me. But if something bad happened to me, I'd be flipping over the rocks. Always suspicious that maybe God does not like me as much because I'm not living impressively. Some of you are there today. Maybe many of you. This would be your theology. And you'll know that by maybe the statement that rolls through your mind and sometimes out of your mouth that says, God, I've done everything you've asked. Why is my life so bad? That is us basically saying, I have been impressive in my behavior. How come you've not been impressive to bless me? It's subtle when we place God in debt to us. It's subtle. But we look to our performance and we imagine that God looks at things the way that we do. That's how we look at people. We measure people by their performance. We measure ourselves by our performance. And we just think that God looks us the same way. And I think what's most sad is not that as a pastor I lived like this for a decade. It's also that I taught other people to live like this and see God like this. So whenever someone came to become a Christian, we'd see a new disciple, we'd be very quick to celebrate a new life in the Lord, and we would be equally quick to give them a new list of impressive things to do and a new list of things to avoid so they could be impressive. Listen, the accusation that the church is all about rules, that is not unfairly deserved. The church, capital C in America, we should own that a little bit. Right? The average Knoxvillian considers the church not really a people, but a place. But it considers it to be a place where I'm supposed to tell you that this is a list of bad things you should be avoiding, and shame on you if you're not, and this is a list of good things that you should be doing. The average Knoxvillian feels like the church is the place that you go where a professional like me shames you into a behavioral change. But behaving so that God likes you more, that's not life at all. It's not very life-giving. It's not good theology. And Paul's going to kick on that a little bit here. Now, last week we looked at how there was so much conflict swirling around Paul when he says the statement, rejoice in the Lord. There was conflict inside the church, conflict outside the church. He had some internal conflict going, and he still leads us to rejoice. Well, one of the aspects of conflict were these dogs that he mentions here. They are men that are teaching that Jesus is not enough to get God to like you. You're going to have to do more. He calls them evil dogs who mutilate themselves. He's talking about circumcision in that. Because they taught that it's Christianity plus circumcision. It's Jesus plus circumcision that equals God's approval of you. So he's aggressive here. Now, he's not cussing, but he's kind of Christian cussing. He's speaking in language. We're going to find out that his, his mom would probably blush at a little bit. He's being harsh. He has a definite edge. And so my first question, if I'm just being honest when I read a passage like this, is just to ask, what's the big deal? Why is he so angry? Why does it matter if we add a couple things to Jesus, right? Add baptism or circumcision, or giving, or attendance, or 
whatever. Why does it matter so much? I mean, all it's going to do is just build a cleaner, more behaved people. What's wrong with that? A couple of things we can say to that. A couple of things. One is there's nothing wrong with a new heart leading to a new life lived, new behavior. There's nothing wrong with a new heart um, begetting new behavior. That's what new hearts do, right? But there's everything wrong with our new behavior if we're trying to get a new heart. If we flip the order, there's everything wrong with it. If we have the ability to be impressive enough to make ourselves right in God's eyes, then we have no need of Jesus. In fact, we're saying that what Jesus did on the cross is not just insufficient, it's not necessary. And by the way, we still have these dogs today, these evil-doing teachers today. I know that sounds harsh, but I don't think Paul, if he were to be here among us, walking among us, I don't think he would have used language back then and refrained from using the language now when we have just as much, if not more, teachers doing the same thing, right? And here's what I know. I was one of those teachers for a decade. I was one. And why would teachers like them, or even me back in that, that brief amount of time, why would we be exposed to grace and the beauty of grace, which is God loving and bringing favor to you despite you, and despite what you're able to um, be impressive enough to get or to run away from, totally despite your activity, why would, when we have been exposed to grace like that, deny it by adding a couple things to it? Why would these teachers delete grace virtually? I think one reason, they hated the idea of sinners, dirty people, becoming new again without having to clean themselves like they did whenever they were young. They want everyone to walk the same path that they walked. That was a big reason right here. So in Matthew 20, we see Jesus speaking directly to it. You could stay where you're at right now. I'm just going to turn there quickly. And this is going to be inside of a parable that Jesus tells his disciples when he talks about laborers in a vineyard. And the story goes like this. This guy owns a big vineyard. He wakes up early one day and he needs a bunch of workers. So he gets in the pickup. He drives down to the gas station and he finds guys there that are willing to do some day labor. And he says, hey, I'll pay you a denarius a day if you come out and you work. They say, sure. He loads the truck up, takes them out. They start to work. A couple hours later, he goes and he gets more guys. A few hours later, he goes and gets some more guys. A few hours later, he goes and gets some more guys. And then one hour before the end of the workday, one hour, he goes and he scoops up some more day workers, takes them down, they get busy at work, and then it comes time at the end of the day to settle up accounts. And this is what happens. And we're going to find this in Matthew 20, verse 9. And when those hired... About the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And then Jesus leaves this parable and says this statement. So the last will be first and the first will be last. We hate this parable. 
don't we? <laughs> I don't like reading it. I don't. I feel the pain in this guy. We don't want the last to be first. We want the last to be last. Who wants to work really hard for something to watch someone else get it for free? I mean, if you if it took you 20 or 25 years to pay off your student debt, which it probably is for some of you when you really think about it, and then the very next day, the day after you wrote your last check, the government cancels all student loans. You'd be happy, but not really, right? You'd be happy for people because that's a very generous thing to do and it's a very big weight lifted off, but you had to pay for it. You kind of want people to pay their dues, right? We're going to call this older brother syndrome. It's going to be helpful for us. And I'm getting that out of another parable and that's going to be in Luke 15. And we're going to take just a brief look in that one as well because it's going to be very helpful. And this is the parable of the prodigal son, right? So just a refresh if you're brand new to the Bible because I'm not going to read the whole parable. We have a family. We have a father and two sons, an older and a younger. The younger, he wants to go and spend it. He wants to go into the big city, leave his family, turn that page, put his family in the rearview mirror and go spend it on anything his little heart desires. So he says, Dad, I don't want to wait for you to die. I want to pretend you're dead now. I want all of the inheritance that's due me and I'm going to leave this family and I'm going to go. And the father does it. And he takes his money and he leaves and he spends it all on all kinds of incredible stuff. And he basically spends himself into debt. And then there's a famine and then he realizes, man, I've been a real moron. So he runs back home and he begs his dad for a spot on the workforce. I just want to be a servant. I just want to be here and I want to serve. I want to prove that I fit in this family. And the father doesn't really let him finish his monologue. The dad just says, you're my son. You're not a servant. We're throwing a party. The most expensive party I can afford. I'm so glad you're here. Right Now, that's not the end of the story. That's, that's a favorite part of ours. But if you go down to verse 25, you see the last chapter of this story. It says this, Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. See, this older brother, he's a legalist. He doesn't want the last to be first. He wants the last to be last. Have you ever considered what scenario would have made that older brother happy? He was mad. What would have made him happy? I, I expect it would be something like dad lets him serve. And not just serve, but serve night and day. 
served to the bone to where he has calluses to match the older brother's calluses. And he has tan lines and sunburns to match the scorching heat that baked his older brother all of those years. And for year after year after year, he'd have to earn. He'd have to be impressive. He'd have to prove to the world that he fit inside of this family. And I still suspect it would have never been good enough for the older brother. Listen, this is a parable for us. <laughs> this is in the Bible for you and me because we are both brothers in this story. What we try to do is we try to put ourselves in one or the other. We are both because we're allergic to grace. We're not big fans of it. It's uncomfortable to receive grace, which sounds like, Dad, I just want to serve. I'm just here to work. Put me to work. We also don't like grace when other people get something that they didn't deserve, which is what the older brother struggled with in this. You see, we don't like grace because it holds us in this dependent place. Earning allows us to stand on our own two feet, and that's what we prefer. And we get that from our first father and our first mother all the way back in the garden. If you were to flip back to Genesis 3 on your own time, you'll find in the fifth verse the snake slithering up, and he speaks to this couple, and he says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay, listen. Adam didn't sin because he wanted knowledge. Adam sinned because he wanted autonomy. He wanted to be independent of God. He wanted to be a semi-God unto himself. And on our own fallen way, we do the same thing. We do the same thing. We stand before God, but we want to stand before God as one who earned our place there. One who earned it. Give us a checklist, God, and we'll be impressive. Or at least we can try. Put a bar up there and we'll jump over it. We want to be right before God without the need of depending on God. That's what these dogs were doing. These dogs put their confidence in being as Jewish as possible, right? And circumcision was the first bar to jump over. It was the first box to check. So Paul, to make his case, he out-Jewished all of them with his resume. But then, in a peculiar way, he throws it away. Why does he do that? Why does Paul do this? Why would Paul go through all the trouble of showing off his trophy case of culture and heritage and knowledge and background just to step all over his own trophies? You know, this word he uses, loss, it's all a loss to me. It's rubbish. That, that word, skibola, in the original language, it's rendered out to be dung, actually worse than dung. We kind of put that word in a cage a little bit um, and tame it so it's not so offensive, which why it doesn't say crap in your Bible, but that's what it means, right? I mean, let that inform how you read this. And not only is that kind of drastic and edgy, does it not feel like Paul's being a little obnoxious here? Right? That he's kind of flexing in some cringeworthy way. I mean, you've been around people that they kind of just brag over everything that they've done and who they are, and you just you, you feel kind of gross for them, right? It's like they can't see how odd they look, how uncomfortable it is. He's kind of doing that, it seems like. Circumcised on the eighth day. All that means is that his parents didn't cut any corners. That even when he was a baby, he was impressive. Even when he had no ability to do things, he was impressive. Of the people of Israel, that just means his bloodline was one of Israelite blood. He didn't become a Jew later in life. He was born one, and not just born one, but he was born of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamins were kind of the Navy SEALs of the day, right? That was the upper crust of the nation of Israel. And not only that, the very first king of Israel 
King Saul was a Benjamite, and that's who they named this guy after. And not only that, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had a surpassing skill in language and in heritage and in culture. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee, which means he had superior Bible knowledge. Uh, he was trained by Gamaliel himself, so he had a deep understanding of the Old Testament. He says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. I mean, we see that. He says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, which just means his obedience was impeccable. But here's the thing. Everybody already knew this about Paul. I mean, his TED Talks, they were the most downloaded ones. He was a pretty viral guy. He was the homecoming king and the most likely to succeed. He was on all the red carpets. He was on all the talk shows at night. Every Jew in the world wanted to trade resumes with this guy. He, that's what he's saying. If anyone was right before God without Jesus, it was me. He says, I was the most Jewish man on earth. My trophies prove it. And it hurt me. And it all hurt me. And it's all crap. I think we get tripped up on the word righteousness here. It's just a big, big biblical word. And people don't know how to kind of distill it down to something that makes sense for them in their everyday. All it means is just the state of being right before God. The quality of being right for the family of God. That's all it means. Whatever makes us right, that is going to be what we put our confidence in. Right? That's how he's talking about this in a way that maybe we can understand it. And we all build resumes like this, don't we? I mean, a list of things that advocate for us whenever we need to show that we're valuable or that we're worth something. It's the basic idea behind any resume, any resume that we use for work. The very first time I filled out a resume, I was 15 years old. And I was supposed to staple it to an application. I couldn't even drive, but I wanted to work at this gym that was down the road. I was just a kid, and it wasn't some impressive job at the gym. I pretty much wiped the sweat off of the bench press and cleaned toilets at this gym. <laughs> it was my first job. And my dad told me, son, if you just fill out the application and put it in, no one's going to hire you. But if you fill out that application and you put a resume behind it, and then you hand it in personally to the manager and you tell him how you are right for that gym, if you do that on a Monday and you go back and you do it on a Tuesday and you do it on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, you will get that job. And sure enough, I show up on Monday and I put that resume in and the application and I looked that manager in the eye and did the best a, a squeaky 15-year-old could. And he said, son, we've got no room for you here. So I come back on Tuesday and I do it again. Go back on Wednesday, I do it again. By Thursday, I had that job. <laughs> it's my first real job at the age of 15. Here's the thing. I'm still building resumes. Not the ones I would send out to people, but a, a trophy case. This is what makes me right in this world. This is what makes me right before God. I never stopped. You haven't either. We build resumes to show the world that we're valuable, to show God that we fit. I'm valuable because I'm a great mom. I'm an entrepreneurial business guru. I'm an athlete. I'm an adventurer. I'm a comic. I'm a poet. I'm an artist. I'm a writer. I go to church. I'm honest. I volunteer. I protest. I protest people that protest. Whatever we can do, this, uh, this is what makes me right, and here are my trophies to prove it. And this is how you quickly can figure out what it is that you're putting your confidence in, your resume. Whenever our resume is discarded and crumpled up, it causes a reaction in us. When our trophies are disregarded, as an example, 
I am finally over, finally over my life's goal to be an NFL wide receiver. I had that goal for a while. Back when I was a young football player, I realized real quickly I didn't have the hands for it. I didn't have the speed for it. To be honest, I didn't have anything you needed to be an NFL wide receiver. But here's the thing. If someone were to come today and attack my route running skills, I think I can get over it pretty quickly. Why? It's not a resume I'm trying to build. It's not something I put any confidence in to make me uh, impressive in this world. Same thing about, listen, I float well above any of your criticisms on my skateboarding skills, right? Why? It's not a resume I'm trying to build. I quit doing that when I was 13. So I have zero confidence in my ability to do a kickflip. It just doesn't matter to me. I'm fine if you troll me on how bad my skateboarding is. Do you see what I mean? But, but, if someone attacks my leadership or my parenting or the way that I am a husband to my bride or my faithfulness or my knowledge or my wisdom or my consistency, we start to get a little closer to home because my trophy case has changed. If I were to be criticized or attacked on my ability to plant a church or grow a church or preach the gospel or teach the Bible, these are things that might make me want to defend myself, slip a little resume across the table and say, yeah, yeah, well, look at this. Look at my trophies. Look at what I can do. I do fit. I am right for this or righteous for this. It's nothing more than older brother syndrome. That's why we find him talking to his dad in this way where he says, look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command. He's pushing his resume across the table for good old dad to see. And he put his confidence and all of this consistency and hard work all just to have it washed away because he saw dad give grace to a brother that he feels like should not be the last becoming first, but the last staying last. But why does Paul call this a damaging loss? I mean, for sure, it wasn't helpful, but hurtful? Why would it be a damaging loss? And this is where it's going to connect with you and me today, I think. Every deposit, this is how Paul is writing this. If you really go in and look at the language, every deposit Paul made, he is actually saying was a debit. He was building debt, not wealth. It's like if you took every paycheck to the bank and you deposited, but what the bank did is instead of add it to the ledger as a positive, it deducted it as a debit. At the end of the year, you'd have a tremendous amount of debt. That's what Paul is saying here, very literally what Paul is saying. He's saying every, every step he took towards establishing himself by being the best Jew that a Jew could ever be, he was t- taking a step away from Jesus establishing him. Paul's saying, all those trophies I collected, all those trophies I polished and put in order, they kept me from trusting in God is my ultimate prize. Therefore, it's not just neutral, it's garbage that hurt me. It's crap. It got in my way. It, it, it held me back from finding my Lord. Whatever you're banking your righteousness in, you need to know that's not a nothing. That's hurting you. It's destroying you. You see, the older brother, like the dogs that Paul is speaking about, they felt a sense of superiority. And this is what superiority does. It kind of keeps us from running to Jesus. If you feel like you're super well-behaved, or at least more well-behaved than everybody else, then you're not going to see the desperate need that you have. You will be running away from Christ. 
You see, it's not sin that keeps us from salvation. It's self-righteousness that does. If sin does anything, it brings us to Jesus because it shows us our desperate need in his great supply. I mean, the greatest moment in your life, and some of you have already experienced a moment like this, the greatest moment in your life is when you see how impoverished you are, how much blood is on your hands, how much need you have, how much trouble you're in, how much judgment sits on your head. And at that same moment, you see how generous God is, how much wealth he has to give, how kind he is, how gracious. When you see both at the same time, that is nothing more than the gospel becoming very clear in your mind. But friends, it's no good news at all to wonder if God is for you or against you based on how impressive your behavior is. That's not life-giving. That's garbage. It's garbage. And this is subtle, isn't it? This life of doing math, behavior math, wondering, well, you know, I, I did some really good things today. I did six good things. Let's put a number to it. I did six really good things, but I did do three bad things. But hey, at the end of the day, I net positive three, which means, you know, I was pretty impressive today. I mean, it wasn't a zero and it wasn't in a negative, so I'm, I'm impressive. Listen, if that's you and you're always doing the math of your behavior and deducing how God sees you because of that, Paul's talking to you right here. He's talking to Philippi and he is talking right at you. If you lose confidence in God's ability to hold you close or you gain it based on your performance, he's talking to you. And if you struggle like the older brother when other dirty people find grace and you want them to clean themselves up like you cleaned yourself up, you need to know Paul is talking to you. Like I said, the first 13 years of my Christian walk was one of constantly doing the calculus of righteousness. Did I have enough credits to walk with confidence before God? Was I truly loved, approved? Did I fit in the family? Was I right for the family? Have I done enough things that were good? Have I avoided enough things that were bad? And you might be doing the same thing even today. For instance, does your lack of a prayer life, have you convinced even a little bit that God is not impressed with you? That, that maybe he doesn't like you? that maybe he's created some space with you? Or how about evangelism? Your lack of telling people about Christ. Do you even slightly suspect, if I could just do this one thing well, or I could quit doing this one thing, then God will be excited about me? Do you sometimes feel that God is tolerating you until you work your math out, this calculus of righteousness, where you're doing more good than bad? Do you feel like God is just tolerating you until you become a better, more behaved version of yourself? I think the answer for a lot of people is yes. That's why I started everything off by saying I do think and am resolved that many people in the church are not living a life-giving walk with Jesus. They're just busy balancing their karma. It's a transactional thing. I do so that you do. <sighs> Friends, listen, this is how we've resolved to build Legacy Church, that Jesus is our righteousness. Is our righteousness. And friends, let me tell you why this is important. If, if, for instance, if you, if you move to another city and have to find another church, or you just get tired of my voice, right, and you go to look for another church, beware of preachers and teachers 
that are winsome and quippy and energetic when it comes to leading you to build your own trophy case and be impressive before God, beware of that. Paul calls them evil dogs and mutilators of the flesh. This is what it sounds like, too, on a Sunday morning. I'll show up with a Bible passage. It would sound like me saying, hey, this is what the Bible says. And then, two, this is how you're not doing it. And you should feel real rotten about that. And here, I might throw in a quick little story or a joke or an illustration. But then I'm going to eventually give you some snappy and clever new techniques so you can finally get it done. That way, whenever you walk out, you will feel like righteousness is within grasp. Because Luke gave me three points that I can finally become more impressive. But you're always the hero of the story. And Christ is nowhere to be found in that. Paul can't stand that. But the older brother and all of us, we love teaching like this, don't we? We love it. We can't get enough of it. We want to place confidence in who we are and what we have done. And we want teachers that will lead us there. But friends, do your best and avoid stuff. That is not the message of Christianity. It's not. Do your best for God and you will be righteous. That is the greatest danger to the church in America. It's not COVID-19. It's that. When life is a life of not doing things or doing things, to, to borrow Paul's words, that's a crappy life. So listen to me. If this is your life, if this is your life, you haven't trusted the gospel yet. You've probably heard it. I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but you haven't trusted the gospel yet. Because what the gospel says is that Jesus is your righteousness. There, there's no trophy case that's big enough. You see, Jesus trades righteousness for you and me so that we are made right and it has nothing to do with us. This is what Paul tells another church, the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then he tells a totally different church in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So in Jesus, this is what this means, in Jesus we become righteousness and he becomes our curse. That's the trade that is made. We, he, he wears our curse around his neck when he is on the cross. And because of this beautiful benevolent work, he gifts us. It's favor, it's grace to us. He gives us his righteousness. Because when God found us, we were a cursed people. We were cursed. He found us self-righteous and spiritually broke and trying to be impressive. But like the father says to the older brother, God being good to us says, all that is mine is yours. Here he is. He's Jesus. All that is mine is yours. Now, God's church, God's people, God's kids, they have value. They have significance, worth. They have righteousness. They're right for the family of God. Not because of a circumcision. Come on. Not because they got baptized immediately. Not because they don't smoke dope. Not because of a long list of things. It's, it's despite the trophies we build. And here's the good, good, good news. God's people, they won't be denied an eternity of joy in heaven any more than Jesus will. I want you to consider that. That if you are in Christ, you are as secure in God as Jesus himself is. 
Why? Because we have his righteousness. <laughs> we have his righteousness. So how do we walk in light of this gospel, which is so incredible? How do we walk in light of this? I would say, learn and make war against anything that misaligns where you put your confidence, where you place your confidence. For instance, where does your life have you demanding God's blessing? Where do you demand that? God, I've done so much for you, like the older brother. I've done so much. Why is my life so bad? How come you didn't throw me a party? I didn't get a party. I deserve the party. All I'm getting is fatigue and sunburn. How come you're doing that? When you're convinced that God is ripping you off, your confidence is misplaced. You're placing it in your deeds and who you are and what you've done. I would also say, just to be honest, do you enjoy your relationship with God? I mean, enjoy it. Do you, can you be honest about that? Do you enjoy your relationship with the Lord? Has your life become one of doing things? Not doing things. Being impressive as much as possible. Being acceptable and right before God. If that's the case, friend, you need the gospel. The good story of what God has done for you despite your trophies. And friend, when you can walk in light of that, the freedom that comes is life-giving. It's life-giving. A lot of you, you haven't even experienced true spiritual vital life yet. Because even though God has given you new life in Christ, you're still trying to earn it. You're still trying to be impressive. And listen, some of you were lost very far from God. You might not even consider yourself lost because you don't feel like you're searching for anything. You're just curious about the things of the Lord. Maybe you're even skeptical, right? But you're learning and you want to know more. When the Father meets people who struggle with grace, and this might be you, people getting things that they don't deserve, right? Whenever the Father meets people who struggle with this, what we are finding in this parable is that he throws the biggest party he can afford. <laughs> That's what he does. You bring nothing to the party except the curse that's hanging around your neck. You do nothing. You bring nothing except your need and your desperation. And he brings his best. And he brings righteousness. And he trades. So is God drawing you to maybe throw away all of your attempts to be righteous on your own two feet? Could God today be drawing you to a place where you trust in him and his good news for you? and you leave your trophy case behind you. And listen, if you, some of you are taking communion as a family, and if you're not, and you're just waiting to come back and be with us in a physical church building again, when we take communion, it's just good for you to know that when we take the juice and the bread, it's a remembrance of what Christ has done. And it's an agreement that what he did on the cross is sufficient. Right? That, that bread and that juice, that's, that's Jesus' resume. That's the one he puts forward. It's better than ours. It's the only one that God accepts. The communion table makes no room for our trophy cases. None at all. And listen, friends, when we reach eternity, we're not going to find an older brother and a younger brother. We, I mean, those, those are just characters in a parable. They, they likely didn't exist. But I tell you what we will find. We'll find millions of older brothers and millions of younger brothers because that's who we were. That's who we were. We're not going to struggle with grace anymore, though, are we? We're not. Because the grace that we experienced built a place for us to look around 
and love each other and eternally celebrate what God has done for all of us. We're not even going to think twice about the things that this world held, had that, that held our attention. We're not even going to think twice about our trophy cases. Like Paul will say, ah, those things just slowed me down. They held me back. I was so impressed with them at the time that it hurt me. Wish I'd have just gotten rid of them sooner so I could have had Christ faster. That's what we'll be saying. And our resume, our new one, it will have one word on it. Jesus. Jesus. He is our righteousness. So I want you to meditate on these words. And I want you to have a great day today as you think about these things and you ponder this passage. I look forward to seeing many of you very soon. I know some of you are going to slowly be leaking into our physical setting on Sunday mornings. Um, I just want you to know how much I love and I miss you. And we are here for you as a church if you need anything. So have a great day today. God bless you. Goodbye.